Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Hello Law podcast. Our special guest today is Matthew Smith, a partner in our litigation department and head of our public and regulatory law team. Matthew studied jurisprudence at the University of Oxford before undertaking the bar vocational course at the Inns of Court Law School and being called to the bar in 1993. During his legal career, Matthew has worked at some extremely well-known chambers, Gatehouse, formerly Hardwick Chambers, One Crown Office Row and Warwick House Chambers, for several law firms, including Barlow, Leiden, Gilbert and Capsticks, and for a number of central government departments, including what is now the Government Legal Department, Her Majesty's Treasury and the Home Office. Matthew also joined Legacy Bertram Dyson Bell in 2004, returning again in 2017, where he has remained since then. Matthew has some fantastic insights into what it's like qualifying as a barrister but working in a UK law firm, working in both public and private practice, and what it's like working on some of the country's most prominent inquiries and inquests. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show. And you may have seen how whenever we have a guest on our show, we always like to start by asking them a bit about their background. And with you, it'd be really interesting to hear, how did you go from an undergraduate and jurisprudence student to a qualified barrister and eventually a partner at BDB Pittman's? Okay, well, good afternoon, and thanks very much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. It's my first podcast ever, so I'm really <laughs> excited about doing it. Um, yeah, there are a few few twists and turns uh, from my time as an undergraduate through to uh, my current position as a partner at BDB Pittman's. Um, and I, I guess the story began for relevant purposes at Keeble College, where I, I read jurisprudence, read law, and um, it was there that I came across um, a really uh, phenomenally inspiring tutor uh, called Jane Hanna, who herself had been a public law barrister uh, before becoming a full-time tutor and fellow and uh, specialised in public law, administrative law and constitutional law. And she really inspired me, uh, inspired my interest in in those areas right back at those earliest times. Um, Having left college, I then went to um, the Inns of Court School of Law, as it was then called, to do the bar vocational course. Um, and that was a very different environment from my college experience. And I, I have to confess, it was not my favourite year in education, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I got through it. And um, I then uh, was lucky enough to secure two pupillages. At that time, it was usual to do two six-month pupillages. And I was, I was looking at that time to, uh, to go to the bar um, which I eventually did, and we can talk a bit more about that in due course, I think. But um, the first six months of my pupillage, I spent at what is now Gatehouse um, Chambers in Lincoln. Well, in fact, they're in Gray's Inn, I believe now, but at the time they were Hardwick Chambers. Um, and uh, if, interestingly or, or not, perhaps the uh, the chambers uh, were built on the site of an old toilet block um, at Lincoln's Inn. So we used to call it Harpic chambers being really amusing as we were at pupil <laughs> um, that was my first six months and i had two really great pupil masters there nigel jones uh who's still a leading light and i think joint head of those chambers uh and william boychuk um who was also brilliant uh then i went for my second six months of pupillage to what was at the time one crown office row and now is carmelite chambers um 
And uh, there I was particularly influenced by the head of chambers, um, Richard Ferguson, who was um, a really brilliant advocate, um, came from Northern Ireland. Um, I, I remember one case in particular in the Old Bailey where um, he was defending, defending two policemen accused of falsifying evidence in uh, respect of uh, suspected IRA operatives. And um, he switched seamlessly between really complex arguments in front of the judge once the, when, when the jury had been sent, sent out and then clicked back into a very much more sort of homely, um, I'm just a lad from the bog side type delivery when he was talking to um, the jury and it was really brilliantly effective and, and that made a real impression on me. Um, I then was uh, able to get a tenancy at Warwick House Chambers and I met a whole load of really brilliant lawyers there. We came together as um, early or early years tenants in what was known at the time as the kindergarten because all the people there were relatively young at the time. <laughs> um, I'm sure this was very PC, but uh, there you are. That's that's what they called us. Um, and I've met people there, including Sanjay Lal, who's now a very successful immigration lawyer and judge, uh, and Philip Moser, who's a silk and joint head of Moncton Chambers. And um, we had a great time there and I began to change my focus, I think, at that point away from criminal law, which had been my initial interest and in, in magnet to the bar um, and uh, back towards what I'd enjoyed at college uh, in public law. It was very difficult to get into public law chambers at that time if you hadn't done a pupillage in a chambers which specialised in that area. And I hadn't, of course. Um, and uh, coinciding with some big changes in my personal life, I decided to make quite a leap in my professional life as well. And with a slightly heavy heart, I left the bar um, and looked to take up a place in a private sector law firm. And I went to Barlow, Lydon, Gilbert, which has now been subsumed into Clyde & Co uh, and worked there on insurance litigation, representing uh, the needy contingent, which is uh, large insurer clients, um, but fell under the wing of um, another really charismatic and quite brilliant lawyer, Roger Dalton. Um, I think I disappointed him greatly when I when I left Barlow, Lydon, Gilbert, but the uh, lure of public law was just too great. Uh, and so I did move on from that firm after a couple of years. <clears throat> but I learned a huge amount from um, Roger about marrying top quality legal advice and top quality client care. He was a past master at that. And I'm still trying to meet the standards that Roger set. Um, from from BLG, I went to um, the Treasury Solicitors, now the Government Legal Department. <clears throat> and I, um, I was uh, inducted into a private law litigation team uh, where we dealt with what were referred to as trippers and slippers, um, so personal injury cases for the prison service. Um, but we also did some really exciting cases, and I had one in particular which I remember, which involved um, a fairly uh, juicy claim uh, for misfeasance in public office involving uh, events at uh, the prison in Swansea. And after, I think it was a couple of years in the um, private law litigation team, I then got to where I really wanted to be, which was the public law litigation team. Uh, which was led by one of the managers I've most admired in my career, a woman called Diana Barber, who had a phenomenal, has a phenomenal legal brain, um, but also knew everyone in and around the administrative court and the higher courts and charmed everyone, got the job done brilliantly for her clients every time. And she was also a real pioneer for women in the law at a time when it was even harder than it is now to meld a successful career um, with a happy family life. 
So it was, again, with some sadness that I decided to leave Diana's team in 2004, but Legacy BDB came calling and I was enticed away to try my hand at building a public law practice in the private sector. Um, <clears throat> I was, um, I was uh, very uh, lucky to join that team at that time, as I said, under um, Diana's leadership. And um, it was incredibly, uh, an incredibly tight team, very good people there. And uh, I had a fantastic time. Wow, what a career. That's such an, like to hear the amount of things you've done and the amount of amazing lawyers you've met, it's just amazing. Absolutely. And a couple of additional stages too. Um, uh, Legacy BDB, I think I mentioned. Um, and then uh, I actually had a brief period, well, not so brief, actually, uh, another not insignificant period of time back in the government legal service. And then a stint at Capstick Solicitors before I finally came home to um, BDB uh, at that time, Bertram Dyson Bell, but uh, soon to become BDB Pittman's. And now here we are, very lucky to have you heading up our public and regulatory team. Oh, you're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, you've had this amazing career, um, which obviously started off with your degree in jurisprudence. But did you always know that law was the career you wanted to pursue? I know a couple of people that we've spoken to have thought about other careers first. And some people have been dead set on law since they were young. So was that something that you always know you, you knew you were interested in? Yeah, I think I was I was one of those, um, I think, unusual and probably slightly freaky people who had um, a fairly clear idea from quite an early age. So from the age of 11 on, I was pretty clear about the career I wanted to pursue. I had brief periods before that um, when I wanted to turn out for Man United. Uh, <laughs> and I, that might be possible, I guess, now um, where they're playing at the moment um, or, or indeed to play guitar for the Smiths. But um, I realised once I got to the secondary school that neither of those things was going to happen. And I had a... A conversation with my mother where she sat me down um, just after I joined secondary school and I, d I don't think she was expecting me to declare any great uh, intentions but uh, said have you, have you thought about what you might like to do and I, uh, I said at that time yes I'd, I'd like to be a lawyer when she mentioned um, the possibility of that profession and she thought that um, my uh, natural attraction to a good argument and um, my you know the sort of typically strong-minded and strongly held principles that young people often had might be an asset and so I was sold on that um, as a career from that point on. That makes sense even though it would have been great to see a Man United I think. <laughs> <laughs> but no that's that's really interesting to hear and uh, so the next question is sort of a bit flowing off that I know you touched it when you were running through the, your career and everything you've achieved but was there a specific reason that for example you can pinpoint as to why you chose to qualify as a barrister rather than a solicitor? Yes um, so, so I suppose the serious uh, answer um, but not the entire answer is that, um, I've, as I've alluded to already, I, I like the idea of actually making, standing up and making arguments for my clients and advocating in that way. Uh, and also, um, you know, being quite high minded, as I said, as I said, at that stage, defending these principles that they and I held dear. And we all know that 
life can be a bit different from that in reality but that was <laughs> that was the vision so that was part of it definitely but um the other the other aspect of it i think is is a bit sad really and i was advised never to reveal this when i went for pupillage interviews but i'm going to tell you because i'm on this podcast and i'm really excited about it so why not um i really enjoyed as a child watching a program called crown court um which was a daytime court crime drama <laughs> where you could follow the same case throughout the week to its uh, to its dramatic conclusion on the Friday afternoon, and uh, I was always hugely impressed with the tenacity of the barristers on that show, and it also had a great theme tune. So that's that was uh, in my brain. And then, secondly, my father introduced me to the fictional barrister um, Horace Rumpole, who's created by the real life barrister John Mortimer. Um, and I, I loved the way that um, Rumpole was—he was always brilliant. He always won his cases um, with a with a, an argument that was plucked out of nowhere. It seemed on, on many occasions, but he also um, sort of pricked the pomposity of the judges and his chambers colleagues that he dealt with day in day out. And that all really appealed to me because I, I don't come from a legal background, and some of the trappings of the bar in particular were quite alien and, and sometimes a little odd and Rumpole I think approached them in much the same way and um, that appealed to me greatly so the combination of those things um, uh, led me to think that it might be rather nice to be a barrister. <laughs> those are such great <laughs> reasons. <laughs> you think you'd come in with like a yes I just I love I love advocacy and that for you but I love this added layer of you know you growing up with these tv shows and these books that's that's so fun <laughs> and I hope to see you in the office one day with your working gown <laughs> oh well yeah could be arranged could be arranged <laughs> <laughs> so um we've heard in the introduction that you had this really quite extensive career working in the public sector um for the central government so that's not something that anybody we've spoken to on the podcast any kind of experience they've had before so i'd be really interested to hear what it was like working for the central government and i know you've dropped a couple of nuggets of things that you worked on or people that you worked with were working on but was there anything particularly memorable that you worked on whilst you were um, working in the public sector yeah okay okay um great questions um i i <laughs> I really loved my time working um, in central government, actually. Um, that, that, and so comparing uh, public to private is a really interesting thing to do for me, and, and hopefully it will be for other people hearing this. But um, the, it, it's right to say right at the outset that when you're in government, there are mundane aspects to the job as there are in any job. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't uh, whooping and high fives all the time by any means. Um, but there were more than a fair share of um, really fascinating experiences. And I, I think the most exciting thing about it is to be working at the point where law and politics meet, because they're, they're two passions of mine. I, I love being a lawyer, but I'm really interested in politics as well. Um, there have been times when I've sort of flirted with the idea of getting involved in a, in a political career, and it's never quite happened, but I, I nevertheless still love politics. Um, and all of us, however much we might be exasperated by individual politicians from time to time, I think are engaged by the issues which are all around us uh, day in, day out. So it's really great to be involved in that as well. Um, the fact that your cases might well be featured in the media, well, you know, highly likely to be featured in the media, was always um, brought an extra component um, to it. That's not unique to um, central government work, of course, but it happens more often, I think, in that environment. Um, and assuming that you were allowed to talk about your cases, then 
people you knew from all walks of life would know about the issues you were addressing and they would almost certainly have a view about them themselves so you know it was a really interesting point of discussion with people more generally um I think in terms of the contrast between public and private, many people think that life as a government lawyer is an easy one, relatively speaking, and that everyone clocks off at five or 5.30. Um, and I think there's sometimes a feeling that government lawyers are less, less accomplished than their private sector counterparts. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the government legal department is actually chock full of dedicated, extremely hardworking and super smart lawyers. And I, it was a great pleasure and a great privilege to work with them. Uh, and now, of course, I sometimes rub up against them as opponents and um, I respect them immensely for the quality of, of what they do. In terms of the highlights um, in government legal service, uh, there are quite a few candidates for that accolade. But I suppose the one that I would pick out in particular is the Hutton Inquiry, um, which was established to investigate the events surrounding the death of the government scientist David Kelly. Um, and it took place in the eye of the storm that was the Iraq war. Um, the inquiry itself was convened very quickly at the beginning of a summer. And it was um, the first inquiry, I think, that was really allowed to and able to dig into wider government communications, in, including what was then still um, novel to some extent, the novel medium of email. Uh, and that and the more informal style which had been adopted by the Blair government as compared with predecessor governments meant that the um, public had unparalleled access to the government machine and its decision making processes um, in the context of that inquiry. And there were plenty of controversial claims, of course, and moments of high media drama. Um, it's, it's an experience which was tinged with um, a huge amount of sadness, uh, but it's one which I will never forget. It makes sense and it's it's so interesting to hear about all this from you uh, because you have such a like from your career you've experienced so much firsthand that it's it's just so valuable to hear your, your thoughts on all these things and i'm sure all our listeners will like will be taking so many notes of this episode just because it's such an interesting topic that we're covering here and i was just thinking before we started the episode that maybe some for example will be studying public law at university will be we might not have a super clear idea of how it works in practice. Would you be able to sort of um, run through public law, what it encompasses, and, for example, how would you define it uh, as a whole? <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's but, not too much. <laughs> I, had a, I had an inkling, as you know, that you might ask um, something along those lines. And yeah. uh, it's probably <laughs> the hardest question uh, to answer. It's absolutely fine. No, it's an important <laughs> one. But um, I think... The first thing to say is public law is incredibly difficult to define or to define it accurately, at least. Um, so I suppose there are there are what look like very simple definitions which say that public law is is essentially the law that governs relations between private individuals and private organisations on the one hand uh, and public bodies on the other. Um, but even as I, I'm saying that, I know that that definition is incomplete and it's potentially misleading. Um, so, for example, private bodies can be subject to public law in respect of some of their activi activities, depending on what they're doing. Um, and it's, it's also difficult in some cases, at least, to know what's a public body and what is not. So um, my recommendation for anybody who needs to know whether they're grappling with public law or not would be to contact a good public lawyer and ask for their advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, the, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, the next question was something that I think you've sort of mentioned before, like when you were talking about what you studied and as part of your career. But um, it's always interesting for us to ask the people that come on the show, like how their passion for the area of law that they work in has arose throughout their career. Would you be able to just potentially summarize for you how that happened uh, in the case of public law? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it is very much linked to, to, to what I've said already. So very much um, the the intro my introduction to public law, what it was all about, um, uh, and and by that I mean public law, administrative law, and constitutional law as a package was was um, being taught by Jane Hanna at um, Keeble, and and really um, it was a revelation to me because I guess like many other people, and I again I've mentioned this already. Um, your first experience, your first understanding of what the law is, uh, tends to be criminal law. And um, public law was, um, I think, the second thing, the second module, as it were, or component of my course. So I did criminal law first, but then public law was the very next thing. And it, it was a real revelation to find that there was this whole area of law which was nothing to do with criminal law, um, but was fascinating and as i said it did it really sort of pulled together those areas which were of great interest for me in terms of the law on one on one side of the equation and politics on the other um and just fascinating questions um at, at that time we were and this is revealing my age now um pre-human rights act although there was quite a head of steam building for um an act of that sort or something like it um and you know th those were absolutely fascinating debates um and so i think all of that came together to to um create my my love public law and, and give me a real and really draw me into it as an area that i could see myself practicing in for a whole career that's so so totally right that you just think that criminal law is the only area of law that exists and then suddenly you get to university and you're thinking what's equity and trusts <laughs> what's public law i never knew these things existed so yeah. it's yeah. so interesting to hear that you know that's something that you experienced as well and that you know learning these things at university has spurred a complete love that has now given you such an amazing career yeah no absolutely yeah and, you know, speaking of your amazing career, you have worked on some extremely high profile inquiries and inquests. So to give our listeners a flavour of what those are, um, and this is to name but a few, and there are some more recent ones that have happened since these. Um, you worked on the Bloody Sunday inquiry, which examined the circumstances surrounding the killing of 13 civilians by paratroopers during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. The Hutton Inquiry, um, which examined the circumstances surrounding the death of government scientist Dr David Kelly. The Independent Inquiry into Child Sex Abuse, which looked at to what extent institutions in England and Wales had discharged their duties to protect children from sexual abuse. And then if that wasn't enough, you've also worked on the Westminster Bridge and London Bridge and Borough Market terror attack inquests, which, you know, those are horrible events to have taken place that you're then pouring your time and effort into. So I can only imagine the amount of sensitive and distressing material that you have been privy to. So what is it like working on these given the nature of the work that you do and the fact that they are so nationally significant? 
Um, and also I'd love to know how it feels when these are finished, because I suppose you and the team pour hours and days and weeks and months of your life into them. And then I suppose when it, when it finishes, that's just, it's done. So does it, does it, are you proud when they're finished? Is it happiness? Is it a sadness that it's done? How does that feel? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, lots to break down. Lo lots to cover. Yeah. No. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I mean, if I, if I'm completely honest, day to day, um, it's much like any other work dealing with inquiries and inquests in the sense that um, there are tasks to carry out. There's analysis to be undertaken. There's advice to be given. All the things we're familiar with in whatever context we work. But um, if you step back from that for a moment and think about the, the, the wider context that you've just described, Sophie, then um, it is, uh, oh, and you're, you're absolutely right to say, incredibly sad events that underpin many of these things and, and a great need for sensitivity about those. But speaking purely as a lawyer dealing with the issues in those sorts of contexts, um, it's really an exhilarating experience. Um, you do feel like you're working on something that is really worthwhile and um, I'm sure we've all had experiences where that's not been the case but the, the, these um, without without exception these cases have that sense about them um, and you're also again you're working on something that will resonate with many many people obviously depending upon the issues but they'll be extremely highly relevant to the people who've been directly affected by the issues that are being investigated or explored um, but also in lots of cases uh, of the cases we've just mentioned there's there's a much wider general public interest um, in in what's been done and despite um, you know occasional uh, skepticism about the function of public inquiries and in, uh, and inquests to affect change um, there are plenty of examples of them doing just that um, and if you I mean just take one example if you look at the McPherson report which looked into the circumstances surrounding the death of Stephen Lawrence and the the difference that that has made to our approach to race relations in the period following that inquiry and its report and the, the introduction of the concept of institutional racism for example um, I mean that was a really watershed moment and um, a really important thing it's <laughs> ironically it's not one of the one of the um, investigations or in inquiries that I've worked on but it's a, it's a really clear one of um, a case where where real change has been made as a result of that work so you are aware whatever inquiry inquest you're working on I think you are aware of the additional layer of responsibility which in my view attaches to that work um, because because of the nature of it and um, and the possibilities that it brings the hopes that are invested in it by um, the people who uh, are directly interested in it, but more widely as well. Absolutely. As you say, some of these inquiries, inquests, investigations bring about such massive change that you can't understate the importance of them. Um, so it's really inspiring to hear you talk about your experience with that and how you feel that they are making a real, real difference. I, and, I forgot, Sophie, didn't I? You asked me, how does it feel when they're finished? Yeah. And, Sorry, um, I, I took so long answering your first question that I've forgotten to, to tell you how it felt when they finished. Um, I think it um, it varies from uh, inquiry to inquiry, inquest to inquest, and it will depend to some extent on the way in which the report recommendations 
um, are received and the extent to which they're implemented or not um, as to you as to whether ultimately I guess you feel that it's had a real importance and, the, and I guess the Hutton inquiry is an interesting one having mentioned it earlier one as being the, the thing I remember particularly from government work um, because time in some ways has not been kind to the Hutton inquiry um, if, you, if I can put it that way um, that the perception of what happened then um, has changed over time and I think is less favourable um, not not to the lawyers who worked on it of course but um, less favourable to it as an exercise and the findings of it and people I think over time have felt less and less satisfied with the outcome of it um, so that that can be a strange um, situation to have because that, as I've already indicated actually working in it was was really um, very satisfying and very invigorating as a lawyer um, and then to see that that sort of change of perception but you know that I guess that goes with the territory doesn't it if you're dealing with political events um, views will change over time and um, Bloody Sunday is another one the Bloody Sunday inquiry came to a very different set of conclusions from the Widgery inquiry which was the inquiry that was set up immediately post Bloody Sunday and which was you know as time went on was seen as being something of a whitewash and um, implemented far too soon and carried out far too quickly and, and not having come to the proper conclusion. So there's always that risk that um, history will judge things less favourably. But um, I guess that's part of the attraction to the work as well. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. I suppose in the immediacy, you might feel one way, but a couple of months or years later, based on how the public feels and how things have developed, you might feel a different way. Yeah. So yeah. really, really interesting to hear that. And I suppose we've spoken about your past in public law. So maybe now we'll look at the current situation of public law. And I, I, from given that you've had this really, really extensive career, I think maybe you might have a different view on this than some other people might. But what do you think are the biggest challenges the public law sector is facing at the moment? Yeah, I, I don't know whether I do have a different view from other people. It would be interesting to know, actually. Um, I think some of the things I'm going to say will have been commented on quite widely, um, but then nonetheless true for that, um, in, my, in my view. Um, I mean, I think one of the one of the key challenges, and it's been a challenge for a long time now, is squeezed funding. Um, and so, that, that I mean, that, that will clearly impact um, those people who want to bring um, judicial review, for example, um, and would be claimants, but it but it also has an effect in in the inquiries and inquests world too. Um, yeah, inquests, an interesting example. Very often, our our inquest work is funded by a local authority responsible for the area or a couple of local authorities responsible for the area areas in which the events that are being investigated. Um, took place in which the death took, uh, occurred and um, we all know the state of local authority funding at the moment and so there's a, there's a real squeeze um, on the rates that can be paid to um, those people who are involved in that work and, and that's a real challenge to do justice to the what's a really important job for the reasons I've already explained um, and to do that within a very tight financial box um, is 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 a great challenge um, allied to that and again thinking about it from a sort of claimant judicial review perspective 
um, there's there's a recent challenge which is coming from government in no small part to the role of campaigning organisations who've often stepped in in the wake of the withdrawal of individual funding um, to take up cases which individuals couldn't afford to run um, but which those campaigning or organisations can and there's increased scrutiny on um, of those campaigning organisations and you know there have been some suggestions from government and indeed in some quarters from the judiciary um, that uh, per perhaps there'll be a, a much um, much closer look at the extent to which participation in um, public law litigation by those organisations is appropriate. So I think that that's a really great challenge um, for, for all of us because it has implications across the piece. Um, other things that spring to mind, particularly in light of recent consultations, um, uncertainty about the proper scope of public law. What is it right um, that we are thinking about in terms of public law? Um, what's the proper separation of powers between Parliament, the executive and the judiciary? We've seen the Brexit litigation. We've seen what in some, some people's eyes is a, a government backlash in the wake of that. Um, and I think uh, uh, that's a really exciting um, but slightly worrying debate um, from a public lawyer's perspective and indeed from most people's perspective, actually, because uh, it's really important that we have a, a vibrant um, public law in this country to, um, to make sure that those areas of activity which should be covered by public law are properly regulated and governed. Absolutely. And I, I really like how you said that some an area of law that sort of affects all of us and so uh, everyone should sort of put some thought towards it and you identified those challenges really well and i think it's something that all our listeners will find very valuable and uh, i'll sort of ask you a question which is probably not super easy to answer but what do you think is what do you expect from the future of the public law sector yeah actually i think i think this might be an easier question oh, to answer than, than it would Surprising. be well then it would be normally and um, um but that's because of these consultations that i have been uh so, that i alluded to in answer to the previous mm -hmm. question so um my, my simple answer is um, what do i think is coming up for the future of public law i think it's probably some measure of reform um what what extent that reform uh to what extent that reform um, eventuates, I don't know, um, but we've had two big um, consultations in the field of public law in recent times. So the first one looking, despite its name, it was um, originally an independent review into administrative law, but it really was a focus on judicial review um, and then a review of the Human Rights Act as well. And in each case, the government convened expert panels um, to look at the, the, the operation of these areas of activity and then to make any recommendations. And they did that, but they made fairly limited recommendations. And essentially, the message was, if the system ain't broke, don't mend it. Um, only uh, and then and then we just saw government respond to that, apparently, um, by issuing consultations um, with recommendations or proposals, at least, sorry, for much more far-reaching reforms. Um, so, as I said earlier on, in a, in a time when we're governed by politicians who we've seen in recent times are prepared to push pretty hard at the boundaries of the rule of law, it seems to me public law is more important than ever. 
Um, but I think part of the agenda at the moment is um, towards reform and I fear some degree of constraint, um, some constraints placed on public law, uh, whether you're, you're thinking about it in pure public law terms or thinking about it in terms of areas covered by the Human Rights Act. Absolutely. And when you need public law at its best, the last thing you want is for its powers to be curtailed and you not actually be able to use it to the full extent that you should to hold people accountable. So, you know, you said you worked in pre-Human Rights Act. Well, soon we may be post-Human Rights Act. <laughs> We'll yeah, <laughs> there we are. Yeah, and I suppose looking to the future as well, and to the not too distant future, um, in May 2021, the government announced that the COVID 19 inquiry would be taking place, and then in December 2021, Boris Johnson announced that the Right Honourable Baroness Heather Hallett DBE would be chairing it when it starts this spring. So, this is a, a huge topic and something that you've been, um, quite vocal on in terms of you know posts on linkedin and videos that you've been doing for the firm so i'd really love to pick your brain about this topic because i think it's something that more people need to be aware of so um or or care about a little bit more um so to start just to give our listeners a little bit of an insight into what an inquiry is um how would you describe a public inquiry at its simplest and what can a public inquiry achieve yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose at its simplest, um, a public inquiry is a it's, it's a major investigation, and um, it can be established in different ways. But most usually now, um, it will be established under a particular act of parliament, um, which gives the inquiry some some uh, powers with real teeth. They can ask. Uh, sorry, they can require witnesses to come and give evidence before them. they can require documentary evidence to be provided. Um, and these investigations um, are usually uh, called and established as a response to a significant public concern about an incident or a series of events. Um, so that, that's essentially what a public inquiry is. And what, and what can be achieved by way of a public inquiry? Well, that really um, is answered by and, and determined by the, the chair or the panel that's appointed to run the inquiry, um, because their, their job will be to call for and analyse um, evidence that goes to the issues they've been asked to consider and then make a, a report. And as part of that report, make recommendations. Um, and the extent to which those recommendations are accepted and implemented, and in the COVID case, um, in case of the COVID inquiry, it'd be obviously a question of the extent to which government accepts and implements those recommendations in large part, um, will determine what can be achieved by that inquiry. Um, but uh, I, did, I did just want to reiterate um, a point I made earlier on with specific reference to McPherson um, and, and the impact that that had on race relations in this country, um, there is always a degree of scepticism about whether public inquiries can actually make any difference. And I understand the reasons for that. And I think we might touch on some of those reasons um, in due course. But um, overall, my, my view, having worked in this area for quite some time now, is, is that they do have scope to make real difference. 
um, they don't always land everything that everybody hopes they will. Um, but the COVID inquiry will be an inquiry on an unprecedented scale. I think it's fair to say. Um, and the hope has to be that it will improve our response to um, future pandemics and the like and, and, and define more clearly where the usual rules of engagement, where the law, as it's usually applied, must continue to apply and where it can be relaxed to some extent um, in the case of an emergency. And I think there was real uncertainty about that in the context of the COVID pandemic. And hopefully we'll get some clarity um, in that respect. Mm -hmm. oh, definitely. That's really interesting to hear from you. And I appreciate you. I just touched on that a bit, but uh, having said you know what public inquiry is also what importantly what it can achieve i think the next question that flows off of that is what do you think needs to be covered in the covid19 inquiry well um i could tell you what i think it needs to cover but <laughs> it's probably <laughs> probably a pretty good steer now because we've actually got draft terms of reference for this inquiry they've been published mm -hmm. very recently and as you would well perhaps perhaps people would have anticipated this um they're pretty wide uh, and they cover all sorts of things um so some examples of the topics that will be covered are um preparedness and um resilience and this is in relation to central devolved and local public health decision making uh, so preparedness and resilience in that respect how decisions were made communicated and implemented intergovernmental decision making how departments related to one another and how well they reach decisions working together the, the availability and use of data and evidence and legislative and regulatory control um, that's just a, a, a smattering of the areas in the first um, section of the the draft terms of reference but on that question of legislative and regulatory control you'll remember um, no doubt from a, from a legal perspective one of the great concerns was about the the way in which um, new powers were taken um, using secondary legislation which was not subject to um, parliamentary scrutiny in the same way certainly as um, primary legislation would be and which was even uh, in, in the context of secondary legislation passed very very quickly there was great uncertainty about the dividing line between legislation and guidance and so all of those things are going are going to be in there testing and contact tracing and isolation um there's going to be uh, uh it seems I, I can't see any of these things falling away there's going to be a consultation on these terms of reference before they're finalized but i can't see any of them um, falling away actually there's going to be a focus on housing and homelessness prisons and other places of detention, the justice system, immigration and asylum, um, financial services to some extent. There's going to be a big focus on the health and care sector, as you would expect, what happened in care homes, um, the procurement and distribution of PPE and ventilators. Uh, it, it's going to be absolutely um, vast in terms of its, its reach. Uh, and that, and that, of course, will have real implications for um, resource allocation for this inquiry, the handling and management of the inquiry, uh, but also the timeline for delivery of any report and recommendations. Yeah, the as you said, the terms of reference and the topics you've just pointed out seem absolutely huge, and it seems like there's no, 
there's no corner that it hasn't reached and touched in some way. Um, so given that these terms of reference are so wide and the topics are so wide in breadth and, you know, it's touched everybody's lives in some kind of way, what do you think, you know, you and I and Ludo and our families and everybody else in the UK and the, you know, what should the average person be hoping to see come out of this inquiry? It's a, it's a great question. And, and you know, some of that is going, the answer to that is to some extent going to depend on uh, the timeline. And as I've already said, given the scope, it's, you know, it's not, it's not going, this, this inquiry is not going to report anytime soon. Uh, and a lot of things can happen in the intervening period. But I suppose generally what you're going to hope for is that um, as, as the ordinary person looking at this inquiry now, you're going to hope that you've got a chair um, who has absolutely top-notch credentials um, as, as a barrister and a judge who can really interrogate vast amounts of information and evidence. And um, we've got to hope that notwithstanding the vast range of proposed terms of reference, um, that she's going to be able to marshal and manage the process in such a way that we can get some really clear recommendations about key areas of concern. And I think what what people will be looking for, and I can't say hand on heart that I think this will necessarily be delivered, um, but in, in very the very sort of highest level terms, they'll want to see some recommendations, which mean that things that we can all, I think, recognize went wrong um, in the response to the, pan the, the COVID pandemic are not replicated. And that's the principal focus of an inquiry always, looking ahead, making sure there isn't repetition of mistakes that have been clearly identified. But there is also going to be, I think, some hope on the part of certain people, uh, certain categories of people, um, that some degree of responsibility will, will be identified. Um, uh, though, I, those who are responsible for particular failings. And whilst the, um, the inquiry doesn't have powers to make findings in regards um, criminal law or civil law, um, the findings of an inquiry can then inform further uh, proceedings, whether criminal proceedings or civil proceedings. And so I think there will be people um, who will be looking for clarity about those issues um, and, and looking for responsibility to be um, identified and, and, and assumed um, and compensation perhaps to be paid in appropriate cases. Um, certainly there's been plenty of litigation already and I suspect there will be more um, as, as things unfold. Mm -hmm. no, absolutely. And uh, sort of the next question is uh, something that you've also touched on briefly, I think, before. Uh, but it's something that it, I think it's useful also to reconsider again uh, in detail. And it's whether the government is actually bound by the recommendations made at the end of the inquiry. And if not, do you think that they will implement them anyway? Yeah. Okay. That's, um, I mean, the. The first thing to say is um, they're, they're not bound um, in uh, any formal way. It is possible for uh, the government, and it has on occasions in the past received uh, inquiry reports and, and received recommendations, and, and they haven't been implemented um, subsequently. I, th I think it's worth just um, saying again just how unprecedented this inquiry is in its scope mm -hmm. um, and 
uh, in the relatively um, contemporaneous way in which it's been established. So the, the, the issues that are going to be investigated are still pretty clear in everybody's minds. Um, they've affected almost, well, I say pretty much everybody in this country. Um, it would be, in my view, very, very difficult um, for the government to ignore altogether um, some of the key recommendations which I anticipate are going to come from this inquiry. On the other side of the equation, though, um, I think it is worth just bearing in mind for a moment that um, someone somewhere once said that a week in politics is a very long time and um, the focus nationally was and has been for a very long time on COVID. Um, but all of a sudden, and, and you know, it's incredibly sad that we're in this situation, but we now, now have the international <laughs> geopolitical um, disaster that's unravelling in Ukraine. And, and there has definitely been a shift in focus. And this inquiry, uh, again, sorry, it's a point I've made, but it's so big, it will not report very quickly, come what may. And the government won't want it to report very quickly for its own political reasons, I suspect. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while to come through with its report and recommendation. Almost certainly a report will emerge after the next general election. Um, who knows whether the focus on COVID-related issues will be quite the same at that stage as it is now. And um, of course, after next, uh, the next general election, there might be a whole new cast of politicians in place, or perhaps even a whole new company, um, if, we, if, we, if we vote for a new government um, of, of a different colour. So um, there are all sorts of uh, those sort of political issues which will, will play into this. Um, I think it's, I still think it's unthinkable uh, that a government could ignore all the recommendations of an inquiry on this scale, uh, but some of them may land with less effect uh, by the time the report actually emerges. Absolutely. And obviously, you you can't appease everybody all of the time, but you would hope that, that good consideration is given to the recommendations that are made, given how how wide-ranging and horrific the impacts of COVID-19 have been. Yes. Um, and I suppose in that vein, given the amount of interested parties involved, whether that be the government and their relevant departments, the NHS and their trusts, the companies who had PPE contracts, you know, you and I and everybody else, this, as you said, the scope of this is absolutely massive. So, you know, notwithstanding the fact that you don't have a crystal ball and you can't see into the future, <laughs> do you think that this is probably the most important inquiry that our generation might ever see? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, for all the reasons you said, relatively short answer. Yes, I do. And I, I also, you know, I really hope that it is in the sense that it would have to be an extraordinary event still to unfold that led to an inquiry that was of greater import than this one. And I hope we don't have to face anything like that. So f for those reasons, I, I hope that my answer is right and that this is the most important one for our generation. That makes sense. Definitely. Hopefully nothing like that on that scale happens again. Uh, but yeah, that makes sense. I think to close off this section on, on this inquiry and the COVID-19, uh, the last question is, well, how can BDB Pittman, for example, assist during the COVID-19 inquiry? 
Well, um, in in many, many ways, actually. Um, I was going to say without wishing to blow our own trumpet, but I'm going to blow our own trumpet. Why shouldn't I? Oh, definitely. Um, um, we, we have a, a an absolutely top-notch um, inquiries, inquest and investigation team um, full of experts at doing the sort of work that will be required uh, in connection with the, the COVID inquiry. So, um, and, and there are relatively few firms that can offer expertise in this area and, and we like to think we're right in the the um the, the, the group of the best of those firms so um that's the first thing to say huge amounts of experience in handling these inquiries great expertise um we can handle all the issues uh that will arise for anybody facing uh, an inquiry like this or this inquiry um and that's that will include things like by no means an exhaustive list, but it will include things like giving early advice about what documents um, should be retained, what your document management policy should be, um, how to set up internal teams and um, the extent of uh, to which they should be able to focus exclusively on the inquiry. I think it's a really important thing and lots of people often overlook that. They're trying to get their internal teams to do the quotes day job and then deal with an inquiry uh, in the margins, as it were. And that's, that's just not going to work with an inquiry like this. So I think helping to set up those internal teams, make them really functional and effective, um, we can give uh, great advice about that. And then we can guide um, clients through the whole process um, there's going to be, as I've mentioned, a consultation now on the draft terms of reference that I've already referred to. Um, we've got great experience at helping people make representations in relation to um, consultations, uh, and that's certainly something we could help with. Um, we know the uh, the teams that um, are likely, or the people, the individuals that are likely to be responsible for running um, the inquiry. Obviously, I've got experience of um, the government legal department and there will be government legal department lawyers who are involved very much in this inquiry, have good relationships with them. And that's really important because it can really help smooth the path for our clients um, by establishing those good relationships or, or building on them um, and, and ensuring that there's early warning of things that clients need to know about and plenty of time for them to respond to requests that are made of them. Um, and those are those are sort of the softer edge things that lots of other uh, firms won't be able to offer in the same way. We can help um, our clients prepare individuals representing our clients to prepare evidence, whether that's documentary evidence or witness evidence, witness statements. We can get people ready for hearings. Inquiry hearings are really um, they're a unique beast and um, very, very few people will have much experience of dealing with them, won't know what to expect. Um, and we can really give people a good grounding in all of those things so that when they do, if they do, have to go in front of an inquiry, then they know exactly what's coming at them and will be able to respond calmly and in a way that allows them to present their case to its maximum effect. And then we can help people um, when they're actually at the hearings, when they're having to give their evidence, um, we can help with the management of witnesses generally. We can help with uh, looking at draft reports and making helping to, to formulate responses and commentary on those reports before they're published. And then when reports are published, we also have our own in-house public affairs and reputation management team 
um, which can help with the really important business of um, positioning our clients well once the report has been published. So that's just a sort of a, a flavour of the things that we can do. Yeah, and it's, you know, given that this is such a beast of an inquiry and, you know, you don't, nobody really has much experience of of being involved in an inquiry if you're an average person or a, a part of a company. So I don't think you can understate the importance of instructing a firm that has the experience to help you to make sure that you put your best foot forward if you're giving evidence at an inquiry or you're involved in some way. So I think, you know, it's really important that you've stressed how we can help, but also why it's relevant that somebody might need the assistance because, you know, somebody might just think, oh, it's just like, it will just, just be easy. I'll just, you know, do it on the side, you know, a couple of hours every evening and then I'll turn up at the inquiry and it'll all be fine. But as you said, these things are not as straightforward as they may seem. And it's, it's important that law firms are instructed when, when needed. So, yeah, I think that's a really important thing that for you to have put across the importance of instructing uh, law firms to help with these things, especially with the reputational management aspect as well, which, you know, people might not even consider. You may think, oh, I'll need a law firm to help me prepare, but you might not even consider the reputational management aspect of it, you know, arising out of such an inquiry. So it was very interesting to hear. And I suppose, you know, that's closed our discussion about public law and the the COVID-19 inquiry and I think it'd be nice to hear about your time at BDB Pittman's now because you've been here for a little while um so as we've heard in the introduction you joined us in 2004 before you left us in 2006 <laughs> this is me crying <laughs> and then you returned again in 2017 so um what was it that initially drew you to join BDB Pittman's as it was back then? And then, you know, how did we manage to snag you a second time? <laughs> um, well, the, the answer is um, in 2004, um, I'd spent a quite a significant period of time in the um, government legal department's public law litigation team that I mentioned at the top of um the podcast and um i i felt i was ready to to try and do something new uh and it would have been quite easy actually to stay where i was i was very happy in the team i was with but um i knew that bdb had an excellent reputation um for public law and 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 i wanted to come across and um see if i could replicate uh the quality of, of, of um, work that I've been used to in public law in the private sector, because that's it's quite a hard thing to do. And there aren't many firms that do it. And I thought BDB had the um, the potential to do that. And um, we made we made some good strides towards that, actually. Um, but if I'm being brutally honest, I, th I think the timing just wasn't quite right um, for, for, for the firm at that time. And, and so I ended up going back to the GLD and I got some uh, got some further really helpful experience, um, including in terms of uh, working on a bill team, which I hadn't done previously, which brought me good experience of legislative work, which obviously is a is a main part of what um, BDB now BDB Pittman's uh, or BDB did and BDB Pittman's does. Um, and then I I happened. To, <laughs> 
to go to a Chambers summer party in, um, I think it must have been 2016. And I bumped into Angus Walker, who I'd worked with um, during my first tour of duty at the firm. And uh, we got chatting. We had a really good chat. And um, right at the end of that discussion, Angus said, do you fancy coming back? And and um, I think we're in a good place now to do um, what we were all hoping to do first time around. Would you, would you like to come back? And um, it, it just happened to be a really good time from my perspective as well. Uh, to make that move um, and uh, and so I did um, I, by, by the time Angus and uh, Anthony Claxton got into serious discussions with me about it I've managed to um, snap my Achilles tendon playing rugby so I was hobbling around uh, when they first came to see me but we had a really good chat about the possibilities for building um, the public law team at uh, BDB, as it still was at that time, but soon to become BDB Pittman's, and I, and I was um, I was really confident that we could uh, we could build what I'd wanted to build first time, and and um, the firm was going to be fully behind that, and, and and we could really make it work, and that's proved to be the case. We've sort of gone from strength to strength, and they say, they say, don't they? You should never go back um, in your career, and I've I've done it twice. <laughs> Um, and um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that because it's worked out pretty well for me, touch wood. Uh, but um, that, that, that's sort of the story as, as to how it happened. It's, it's all due to Angus. So he's the one to blame if it all goes uh, goes wrong. <laughs> no, we have to thank him. <laughs> no, we're delighted to have you with us. And yeah, as you said, sometimes timing is just, yeah, sometimes it's right. And other times it's potentially not just the right time and you just have to see what other opportunities there are and uh, we're just very happy to have you here now at the end it all ends well, <laughs> well i'm very happy uh, to be here yeah that's no, great oh fantastic and um, yeah sort of following on from that um we, we always sort of try and ask guests about their experience at the firm also working with the conditions we've had in during covid for example because you experienced the firm pre-covid uh, during covid and now i don't want to say post-covid but uh, at the time we're starting to get a bit more towards normal let's say yeah how was your experience at the firm uh, during covid and are you happy now to be back in office uh, now that we're sort of hybrid working so sort of a few days a week in the office do you think it makes a difference to be in the office yeah yeah so uh, i mean i think um my experience of working during COVID, during that period, um, I suspect was like, I was, I was going to say everybody else's experience. I'm not sure it's everyone, but many people's experience. Um, th th there was a novelty factor, let's let's face it, uh, in the first instance of working from home all the time. But it, in my case, and I suspect in many others, it wore off quite quickly. <laughs> um, uh, I, th I think some things I did want to, to say um, well, one thing actually that I want to say particularly was that the firm's um, IT department worked wonders. Um, the provision was fantastic. Uh, you know, as soon as COVID hit and lockdown one hit, um, they they moved mountains to make sure that we could all get to very close to business as usual pretty quickly, um, and that was that was really really impressive. So I think that helped to make that initial period um in the in the covid phase much easier than it might otherwise have been um i think covid period working um 
definitely helped dispel some myths that have been around for an awful long time about the desirability or possibility of flexible working. Um, and I think that's been very helpful in other contexts. I'm, I'm you know, I'm hopeful that uh, people who have long argued for more flexible arrangements but have not necessarily been have not necessarily met with great success in making those arguments will find them easier to make now and we can be more flexible in the way we accommodate people i think that's a, a positive actually of the pandemic there aren't many of them but that's definitely one um i am happy personally that we've now moved to a hybrid model um there are advantages of having some time at home. Um, it is, uh, it's definitely easier, for example, in, in my personal experience, and uh, given my, the, the requirements on me personally, to say um, when I'm at home that I'm, I'm just gonna really get my head down on a really difficult uh, piece of advice or whatever it may be, something that requires me just to be very, very focused on that one task in a way that it's very difficult to, to achieve in the office because there's an expectation quite properly that you'll be helping other people, supervising their work and all of those things. And so you, it's much easier to get that sort of dedicated space uh, when you're working at home. But at the same time, um, I'm quite a social creature uh, and it's it's nice to see people IRL I think we say don't we again um, and I think there are there are benefits for everyone um, who's still learning and I think that's everybody actually I mean we, we talk about people who are doing their training contracts and how there are advantages for them in having people around in the office but actually we're all learning from each other all the time um, when we're in the office and I think so there are real benefits associated with that which are lost when everybody is working at home all the time no, definitely. I agree completely with that. And yeah, it's, it's like you say, it's nice uh, when you're at home because you do, you are able to enter a sort of more uh, focused mode, let's say, <laughs> on the complicated matters and something that I also found. But equally, uh, having when Sophie and I did our first seat at, for the training contract, that was predominantly remote. And coming into the office has been such a such a big difference in learning from others how they speak on the phone even simple things like that it's, it's such a massive help for our learning experience it's been a, a great addition to our training i think and mm. um, sort of talking about working during covid was there a difference in the sort of work that came through when covid came around for you uh, whether that be the type of work or also the amount of work well, I, I'm, uh, I suppose I was really lucky because I know there are people in certain um, areas of activity where you know, there was a real downturn um, as, as a result of the pandemic. But because of the nature of the work that I do um, involving public bodies one way or another, um, and obviously the fact that those public bodies were to a large extent in the vanguard um, of dealing with the pandemic, there, there was... Um, no slowing in the flow of work if anything that the, the pipeline was even stronger um the the, the type of work um i suppose generically it didn't change it was about can we do these things within our for example and it's just one example of things we were asked but can, can we do can we do x y or z within the context of our statutory framework are we able to do this are we allowed to do this um and uh, the, the difference obviously came from the fact that you were dealing with COVID specific questions. So, you know, can, can we, for example, hold a regulatory hearing 
um, which is remote, notwithstanding the lack of any reference in our statutory framework to a power to do that. Um, that, that was a, a key question early on. Um, and just to more generally, I mentioned it earlier on, to what extent, our clients were asking us frequently, to what extent do the normal rules of engagement apply given that we're in an emergency situation? You know, to what, to what extent can we say because of the pandemic, um, those bets are off, we have to do things slightly differently because ultimately the, the end result of doing them differently uh, makes it uh, outweighs the benefits of that outweigh the disadvantages or the, the uh, undesirability of not working strictly within our statutory framework. Um, and those are all fascinating issues. And you were having to do quite a lot of risk assessment, um, knowing full well that you're right at the, the boundaries of what was lawful um, on a straight reading or a, you know, a more conventional reading of legislation or rules or whatever it may be, guidance. Um, and those are all fascinating questions. But um, we, I think we managed to, to walk the line pretty effectively um, on on those issues. And as the pandemic went on, um, you know, there was more guidance about the way in which remote hearings could be carried out, for example, and then the move to hybrid hearings. And, you know, a lot of those things became a little bit clearer as more and more bodies were having to grapple with the issues. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to hear how, you know, it may not have necessarily affected the type of work you were doing to the extent that it would be massively noticeable, but in terms of, you know, getting to the court or, you know, extending deadlines for things to be submitted and that kind of thing, you know, um, procedurally, it may have impacted you a bit more, especially when you consider, you know, you there are people within the litigation team who it may have affected far more like the property litigators whose clients may not have been able to have easily removed uh, if they were landlords may not have may not have been as easy for them to remove uh, their tenants who you know if they want to just convert the property or if they're not paying their rent it may not have been as easy so it's interesting to hear how um, you know even within the same department the pandemic can impact the kind of work completely differently yeah yeah absolutely um, you know, speaking of um, work, you've revealed that during your time in the public law sector, your favourite thing that you worked on was the Hutton Inquiry. But I'm going to expand that now. Thinking back, it could be at any time from pupilage to right now on this very podcast. <laughs> Is there a favourite matter that you've worked on during your career? You know, for any reason, it was a it was a big beast or something that was personal to you or something you're particularly proud of. Yep. Um... Well, obviously, this po podcast is an absolute highlight. I said that at the beginning. I mean it genuinely. It's been it's been really great so far. I'm hoping it will continue to be great right to the end. And um, I've really enjoyed it. But um, as I also mentioned at the um, in an earlier part, in an earlier answer, um, I'm a big fan of the Smiths. And Johnny Marr is always asked, uh, what was his favourite? What is his favourite song? What's the favourite thing he's done in his career? And everybody always expects that it's going to be something that he did um, during his career with the Smiths and his answer is always the next thing and I think that's a great answer I think it keeps you hungry for the next thing that's coming down the track so um, that's what I'm looking forward to most and uh, I'm, and certainly if it's the Covid inquiry then it's almost certainly going to be a, a, a particular highlight I should think. <laughs> what a good answer of all the people we've asked that to we haven't had that answer yet so you are you're continuing to surprise us. <laughs> 
And I suppose looking to the future, a, part, a question that we ask um, many of the partners that have been on the podcast so far is, um, what are you hoping to achieve in your role as partner in the future? Everybody has a different answer. Some people want to just ensure that they have work-life balance. Some people want to make real change for groups of people within the firm. Some people want to help the people in the firm continue to grow. So is there something that you are particularly hoping to achieve in your role? Yes, I think I think you well, are. I'm sure there is, um, and it's it's sort of well. I suppose it's not going to be wildly surprising, but what what I would really like to do is um, sort of continue that project and and bring it to fruition that I mentioned that Angus and I talked about way back in 2016 or whenever it was, um, so that we we secure um, the position of the BDB Pittman's public law team in the front rank of um, firms providing those services. I think the, the team has a fantastic reputation. Um, there's been a tendency in the past, I think, to sort of pigeonhole some of the public law as being um, great, great quality, but limited to being uh, linked to particular areas that the firm was known for and has been known for for a very long time, other areas. Um, uh, and I want to make sure that it's known for public law across all the sectors in which we work already actually but sometimes it's not just um, as much appreciated as i would like and so that's that's my burning ambition at the moment is to um to get the team to that place and to get the the appreciation of the team in the wider marketplace um to, to that level of understanding and then then i'll be happy no definitely that's a great goal and i think it's something that we have to achieve <laughs> so hopefully i'm sure we can and uh, thank you so much for all your answers you'll be pleased to know we're at the last question <laughs> taking so much of your time but thank you so much it's been really insightful to hear from you and the last question is something we ask all our guests because it's, uh, it's a question we think is very valuable for all our listeners to hear and it's uh, what's your biggest piece of advice to the generation of upcoming lawyers and also those people that are potentially interested in a career at bdb pitmans Okay, um, I think this is again. This is not going to be revelatory, I suspect. <laughs> but I, I think it is really important, and it's the thing that I um, have found most helpful in my career. And it, it is just to find the area of law which you are absolutely passionate about, which you love most, and then give it your all. Don't try and shoehorn yourself into an area that really doesn't do it for you. Um, just find find that real love and pursue it, and then you will be happy and fulfilled. What a perfect answer. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and sounds like it's based on experience, personal experience, so it comes from the heart. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matthew. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, I have loved hearing about your career, your time at the firm and also all the public law work that you have done. You are an excellent lawyer and a particularly good storyteller. I will say you have me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so thank you so much. It's, it's been a blast. I've, I've had real fun. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for asking me. And uh, that was great. Thank you so much for listening to this Hello Law podcast episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving us a review to let us know what you think. And also don't forget to hit follow to avoid missing out on any new episodes. Again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.